This is A Word, a podcast from Slate. I'm your host, Jason Johnson. Spring is a time for hope, and for many people of faith, it brings the holiest days of the year. But in 1968, that season was marred by the murder of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Now a new generation is re-examining that history and what it can teach us about America's current struggles with race. Even the people who disagree with him, they saw it as a symbol that was holding their rage in check or keeping possibilities on the table, they saw that being removed from life. Racism, riots, and remembrance of Dr. King coming up on A Word with me, Jason Johnson. Stay with us. This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Welcome to A Word, a podcast about race and politics and everything else. I'm your host, Jason Johnson. Holy Week is a time when many Christians are preparing for the most sacred days of their calendar. But in America, in 1968, Holy Week brought the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. And days of riots, violence, and destruction when the threat of a race war hovered over much of America. Holy Week is also the name of a new podcast dedicated to this moment in history and how it played out. It's hosted by journalist Van Newkirk II. He's an author and a senior editor for The Atlantic. He joins us now. Van Newkirk, welcome to A Word. Thanks for having me. Van, you've written things about labor. You've written things about farming. You've written things about water. You have an extensive background in sort of historical, racial, labor, and economic journalism that you've done. Why did you want to examine Holy Week? Like, what specifically about this week after the assassination of Martin Luther King made you say, ah, this is the next thing I want to sort of put both sides of my brain into? Well, I think you you sort of nailed it describing the work. Um, I've been focused on uh, the contours of what's going on with working class folks, with poor folks, black folks especially, and how those two stories of economics in America and the stories of race in America interact in the present. And for me, we have all these discussions nowadays about racial justice. There's been a renewed focus on things like reparations, on really robust conversations on just what is to be done about race in America after the murder of George Floyd in 2020. And for me, we still have to do the work of examining just why we are where we are. And so we are kind of in the middle or we kind of at one pole of this two-pole discussion. Uh, the first pole being the civil rights movement. I like to say American democracy, if we can even call it such, is only 55 years old or so, well, 58 years old, because that's 65 is when black folks got the right to vote. And so you have the movement, you have today, and the dominant narrative is inadequate at explaining how we got to today. How could it be possible if you take the school children, the school book version of history, which is that we had a civil rights movement, we did the thing, we passed some laws, black folks overcame, America got better. How do you square that with a present in which uh, the quote-unquote racial wealth gap is 
even more stubborn than it was before, in which there seems to be less opportunity for uh, working class Black Americans than before, in which climate, environmental justice, injustices uh, persist. How do you square that? And I think that week, uh, that time of King's assassination and the uprisings and the white backlash that came after explain a lot of that. I love how you spoke with sort of elders who survived and even participated in some of the protests, the riots. I talked to my parents about it after listening to some of this because, you know, they were uh, they were in Jersey. And I heard sort of contrasting views about how much they cared or what difference did it make. And the people that you talked to, what were some common threads about, you know, why they were out in the streets? What do they remember now? Even what age they were at, right? And what you may or may not have been willing to do. So what what are some common threads that you found? Well, I think by virtue of the time between now and then, it's been 55 years. Most of the people we talked to were in their teens in 68. And the majority of riots or uprisings occurred in over 100 cities. And as we know, the majority of participants in those were young folks. They were people who were younger than 20. They were people uh, who were in D.C. They were middle schoolers and high schoolers. These are people who sort of grew up with King already being an established figure in their lives, being this titan already on the Mount Rushmore of Americans, already on the walls of their homes, uh, already on calendars. And so they're this first generation who is seeing him more as a symbol. Even people who weren't directly plugged into all the developments in the movement, who weren't following Chicago housing movement, he represented the symbol that essentially there was hope in the future for them, uh, that there was something to look forward to that they could get out of the shadow of poverty or they could find good jobs. Those things were all kind of symbolized in the person of King, even for people who didn't even really agree with him. And so when you saw him killed, it wasn't just killing a person. Even the people who disagreed with him, they saw it as a symbol that was holding their rage in check or keeping possibilities on the table. They saw that being removed from life. You know, something that I think is often glossed over in history is the sort of ambivalence about MLK and his philosophy of like nonviolent resistance. You spoke with Yafis Brooks, who had been a high school student at the time of the King assassination. I'm going to play you this clip and get your thoughts on the other side. We looked at it this way. Martin Luther King, we respected him, but he was soft. We look at Malcolm X, Black Panthers, H. Rap Brown, Stokely Cloud Michael. That's who we we looked at them like that was our heroes. Man, we loved them. Martin Luther King, we looked at him as being a, a good person, a nice person, but he's weak and he's soft. You know, turned over cheek and all that. When King died, you know, and a lot of people you spoke to, were many of them actually ideologically aligned with him? And did his death change their perspective on nonviolent resistance? So I think you have to understand when King was killed, nonviolence was kind of the establishment. You know, nonviolence was, uh, as a organizing and movement philosophy and tactics, those were radical in, in the early 60s. They had become sort of expected by the late 60s. Somebody like a Theophis Brooks, he was, what, 17 in 68? So he was in elementary school when uh, Montgomery happened. <laughs> by the time he was in high school and sort of coming into his own, 
the people who were on his radar, the people who were speaking to young folks in black America and people outside of the South, especially, they were SNCC, they were Stokely, they were rap. Uh, they were the Panthers. Uh, the Panthers were sort of just beginning to form around that time. And so you saw a lot of people who, again, were 15 years into essentially a, America that had been built by nonviolent resistance. And they still saw extreme limitations in their lives. Or in Theophis Brooks's case, they were living in places like D.C. where sort of this focus on integration or this focus on originally getting into middle class spaces for a lot of people didn't really make sense. In D.C., you had a thriving black middle class. You didn't really have to worry much about integration because the city was already over 60 percent black. You had people who, at least in their eyes, they saw King as being outmoded. They saw that philosophy as being something that had gotten them the foundation, and they were trying to build a house. King himself recognized that, and he was changing his philosophy before he died. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, more on the Holy Week podcast and the aftermath of the Martin Luther King Jr. assassination. This is A Word with Jason Johnson. Stay tuned. This is Jason Johnson, host of A Word, Slate's podcast about race and politics and everything else. I want to take a moment to welcome our new listeners. If you've discovered a word and like what you hear, please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. And let us know what you think by writing us at a word at slate.com. Thank you. You're listening to A Word with Jason Johnson. Today we're talking with journalist Van Newkirk II. He's the host of the new podcast, Holy Week, about the aftermath of the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. Before the break, we were talking about like the mixed feelings a lot of black folks have about Martin Luther King Jr. before his death. In your podcast, you focus on this last campaign, the sanitation worker strike in Memphis. Martin Luther King was making a pivot at the time of his assassination. What was that pivot like? And did people see it happening with the sanitation worker strike? Or were they just like, eh, that's, that's MLK doing his same old thing? So at that time, King was in the middle of the Poor People's Campaign. And he was making this pretty radical shift in his thinking about how he could change not just black America, not just black America under Jim Crow, but America. And he came up with this idea that there were three pillars of the thing. One was poverty or capitalism. The other was racism. And the other was militarism or violence. So for him, he came out in 67 against the Vietnam War. He uh, came up with a racial agenda that pushed for housing uh, justice in the North past the bounds of Jim Crow. In the Poor People's Campaign, he called for the Johnson administration to go beyond food stamps and its traditional support for the poor and completely eliminate all poverty in America. So he wanted a universal jobs guarantee. He wanted housing guarantees. He wanted a basic income and universal health care. When he put together this package of things, he essentially alienated himself, not just from the Johnson administration, but from much of the civil rights establishment. So he goes to Memphis. He decides to get involved in a labor dispute. He sees these poor folks, these sanitation workers, who aren't even allowed to use the locker rooms uh, that the white sanitation workers can use who are describing 
basically being covered in maggots all day because they don't have equipment to carry the trash bins in. And he goes there and he's originally just scheduled to make a quick stop. And he goes there and he sees one of the largest crowds he's ever had. And he says he's coming back to lead a general strike. King had never led a general strike. Very few establishment civil rights leaders had done, you know, anything on the level of striking or general striking, calling for an entire workforce uh, in a city to stop working. And he did that. And this, you could see uh, in real time, the makings of a person who was a very different sort of challenge to power in America than King was in 63. This is an interesting thing about this. Once King was sort of established, there were people out there who were also challenging King's leadership and his philosophy. One of those people was Stokely Carmichael uh, or Kwame Ture. He had been part of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, but he stepped away from nonviolence. He's like, I'm not doing this anymore. And after the King assassination, he was ready for war. I want to play a clip of Carmichael from a press conference after King's death, and we'll talk about it on the other side. We die every day. We die in Vietnam for the hunkies. Why don't we come home and die in the streets for our people? Black people are not afraid to die. We die all the time. We die in your jails. We die in your ghettos. We die in your rat-infested homes. We die a thousand deaths every day. So we're not afraid to die. Today we're going to die for our people. What really gets me about this clip, and I've, I've heard it before, is this sort of visceral notion that race war was really coming. There are minority groups in other parts of the world that were 15, 20-something percent of the population that got wiped out, right? <laughs> there weren't that many black people in America. So the idea that, that there could be a race war always seemed crazy to me because it would just be a massacre. And my question for you, when you talk to people and in putting together this research, how real was this fear that a race war was coming? And, and how do people envision it after King's assassination? That speech from Kwame Ture, the known as Stokely Carmichael, that you just played, it comes from an episode that we call Black Messiah. And at the top of that episode, we uh, had an audio recording of people reciting J. Edgar Hoover and COINTELPRO uh, at the FBI their dread that a black messiah in America could unite black Americans in a rebellion against the government. And they specifically compared it to uh, the Mau Mau uprising in Kenya. That's one where, obviously, the, the rebellion was crushed. That rebellion was one that destabilized European influence on the continent. And that was the sort of thing that the U.S. government feared, not an outright victory, but you have to remember back then, the black population was much more heavily concentrated. 65% of black Americans still lived uh, below the Mason-Dixon. They lived in a handful of states. And one of the things that, that Stokely Carmichael had realized in the years before this was if you go to a place like Alabama, for example, or you go to a place like Mississippi, if black folks in Alabama or Mississippi had decided to engage in any sort of serious rebellion, you may not be talking about a national strategy, but you're talking about something that white folks there really have to take seriously because they were in, if not the minority, they were minorities in definitely parts of those states. And in a place like D.C., same thing. And so what was on the radar of both the FBI and also uh, on the strategic, long-term, revolutionary horizon for the militants and revolutionaries was this idea that these concentrated areas, that these uh, 
things that have been made by white racist policy, <laughs> these heavy concentrations of black folks could basically seize, you know, not just in the Marxist sense, the, the means of production in their areas. They could seize local monopolies on force and could create a sort of enduring rebellion that could delegitimize U.S. force. That was both what the FBI feared and what people like Stokely Carmichael and H. Rap Brown hoped for in 68. And I, I think it was a nearer thing than we like to give credit to. In a lot of instances, you know, our history books that we grew up on, whether you're a Zoomer or a millennial or Gen X, is like, well, you know, it's the L.A. riots or it's the 1960s riots, et cetera, et cetera. But in the last 10 or 15 years, these things are being called protests or uprisings. I mean, you go to the L.A. African-American History Museum and the whole thing says uprising. No one refers to what happened in the early 90s as a riot anymore. Why did you all choose to use the word riot instead of, say, rebellion or uprising throughout the podcast? Is it to make sure that we sort of are linked to the time when these are referred to as riots? Or did you have sort of a philosophical definition of like, yeah, there's nothing wrong with saying these are riots because riots in no way sort of take away from the morality or the legitimacy of the outrage? I've actually been sort of skeptical of attempts to relabel things in which participants wouldn't have called them. So I've talked to people who were there, and pretty much most of the people who were involved called them riots. And so I've been skeptical of trying to erase the stigma of calling black presence on the streets riots, because I think what ultimately my reporting has led me to was these riots could have been and might have been revolutionary. And we don't have to erase the fact that lots of people going out to get shirts for Easter, that lots of people were breaking windows because they were 13. And because this was the very first time they could do something and the police wouldn't stop them from doing it. We don't have to erase those aspects in order to view them seriously as an enforcement of black will and potentially uh, revolutionary change makers. However, what you will see and in, in hear in the show, we start to consider them more as political agents, as they are pushing the White House to do things and as they are pushing white America to do things. I am using uprising a bit more because that is how, even at the time, um, people like Kwame Ture, like Sokol Carmichael, were calling them uprisings or rebellions. And they called them that in order to give them a, a sort of solidarity with things like the Mau Mau Rebellion. Uh, and so um, generally, semantically, they're interchangeable in the context of black movement. But I did try to uh, preserve slightly different usages in the show, depending upon the vantage. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, more about the Holy Week podcast with journalist and host Van Newkirk. This is A Word with Jason Johnson. Stay tuned. You're listening to A Word with Jason Johnson. Today, we're talking with Van Newkirk about his new podcast, Holy Week, a reexamination of the aftermath of the King assassination in 1968. I make endorsements all the time. I'm seriously endorsing your previous podcast, Floodlines. Floodlines is amazing. It examined the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina. What is it like for you when you have to pull yourself back out, right? Like you you spent all this time doing this podcast about Katrina and the tragedy, knowing it's ongoing. Then you had to pull yourself out of it. You've spent all this time 
going through Holy Week and hearing this pain and talking to these people, and then you have to pull yourself out of it. What's it like? How do you, how do you get out of that role uh, once you've immersed yourself in this kind of this kind of trauma? So I was interested in Katrina partly because um, a lot of what happened on a macro level mirrored what had happened in my hometown. I'm from Rocky Mountain, North Carolina, and it was submerged completely, almost, you know, places completely destroyed by Hurricane Floyd in 99. So for me, Katrina always represented this cipher for understanding the long dynamics of disaster in any place. And it was also kind of like processing. I was able to go and talk to people who had the language for understanding things that I had not yet had the language for in my own life. And so on that level, it was something that uh, was actually helpful for me for uh, understanding and sort of placing in my own life why this thing had happened. But with that and with this project, uh, there is a lot of absorption. Both of them took about a year to report. We interviewed dozens of people for both. And I've sat down for hours and hours, hundreds of hours, talking to people about, you know, some of the worst days of their lives. And it is something that is and can be difficult. I think what helps me and how I rearrange myself after we finish is I'm in touch with the people still um, who shared their stories with us and trying to do something that does justice to those stories, it brings them to light, and keeping in touch and corresponding and hearing them saying that it helped them to process this moment in this way, it's helpful. And it gives me the stamina and drive to keep going because it is difficult work. A lot of times when you're talking to people in your podcast, when you're doing your reporting, especially if it's about historical events, these people are still there, right? They're still attached to the land. They're still attached to the streets. They're still attached to the neighborhoods. They can walk you through. They may literally be in rebuilt versions of their houses that were you know, burned during riots and attacks and, and, and things like that. Um, but now you're in the D.C. metro area where a lot of this stuff is being erased. A lot of it's, it's, it's being gentrified. A lot of it's being torn down and coffee shops are being put in places that, you know, were sort of history. What do you think a place like DC can lose by, I mean, we, we know the general issues with gentrification, but like when men and women are detached from the land and the streets and the concrete and the road signs where they once fought wars, isn't it harder for them to remember those wars? Isn't it harder then for people to have an appreciation for it? Sort of compare, I guess, what your experience has been like in D.C. compared to being in North Carolina and other places where people are still attached to the very land that they fought and bled for. This is an interesting question, and I think it raises one of the concerns that I have with redevelopment in a big city. Displacement in D.C. of the black population is, is paramount concern in that city. The battle for that's probably already been lost for black Americans in, in D.C., but even robust conversations we have about it really only focused on sort of present people. And I think you miss out on how much of their history and narrative is also displaced on how much of a greater sense of belonging and responsibility are erased when you pave a place over. So, for example, the target on Columbia Heights. It's a goliath of a, of a building, of a, of a shopping center. There's everything there. There was a Bed Bath & Beyond there. I think it's going out of business. There's a fitness center, everything. Multi-story thing. 
that used to be the site of a store called G.C. Murphy's that was burned down in 68, where two uh, black boys died. So, you know, now you're going there, you're going to get your little fitness pump in, and you're going to grab some whatever you get from Target. You're walking over the bones. One of those boys was never identified. You're walking over the place where people died in this riot or rebellion. What does that mean to you? Does it mean anything? If you go down now, you know, 14th Street, or you go to you go to U Street, U Street's a whole different prospect than it used to be. You know, you can go pure, you can get your dollar shots, you can go to any number of the bars and get a big slice, whatever. You're walking down a place that for a generation was burned and not rebuilt. Bodies still being found years after the fact. D.C. is a place that is built on this push and pull, specifically D.C., uh, between the demand for black liberation and the larger American demands for black subjugation. And D.C. is the locus for that. And you lose that. The more you pave over, the more you build fancy you know, shopping centers and nice little condo units. And I think losing that is kind of the point. We focus too much on people being moved in and out. We can lose sight of uh, the fact that erasing that history is a project that goes well beyond the Ron DeSantis's of, of America. It's a common project. When work like yours is produced, what age would you introduce people to this, right? Like any adult can listen to your podcast, Holy Week. But like if somebody said, hey, where should I put this into my kid's curriculum? Where would you start? Would you say, eh, I think a sixth grader could get it? Would you say maybe a college freshman after they had sort of a, a rudimentary sort of civil rights course? Like where would you place this podcast in an educational curriculum for, for kids? I think this is something that uh, we actually have to deal with with floodlines, too. And I've heard middle schoolers who listened to it and who understood floodlines. That one was a bit tougher, I think, for, to be assigned because there's more profanity. In this one, I think its knowledge burden is a little bit lower. You don't have to understand levees and things like that in, in this. So I think it is something that... I've played it in the car with my six-year-old son, and it's fascinating to see him grasp things. And, you know, I want him to know about the place where he was born and what the history there is. That's kind of why I do this work. I'm always making things that I hope can be introduced in the formative learning years in middle school and maybe, you know, early high school. Because for me, that's, if you don't get it there, it's kind of difficult for it to shape you in a real way. You can have it intellectually when you get it in college, but, you know, I think the people who are still living in D.C., the people who are living in these places where they had riots or had the last generation now who was able to tell them about it firsthand, they deserve to know about it as part of their formative experiences. What would you want to be the main thing somebody takes away from your podcast? Is it a different appreciation for how close this country came to the brink? Is it another way to look at MLK? Is it sort of uncovering and dusting off, you know, a week in American history that is almost as crucial as the Cuban Missile Crisis? What do you want to be people's big takeaway from this great work? What I want people to take away from this is that we have so many existing, so many living and thriving still pieces of this history that are around, of this radical history that uh, obviously... We're exploring the way that America went through Nixon to today. 
but it was very near thing for it going the other way, for it actually pushing to fulfill the things that at the very least King wanted and as far as policy went. And the people who built that progress and momentum and who were able to see and imagine uh, that alternate future, they're still here. And a lot of their history, a lot of what they have to say hasn't been captured. And for me, the call to action, the optimistic thing is, if you want to do something, if you want to imagine a different future for America, I think one of the things you can do is go and talk to those folks. Journalist Van Newkirk II is a senior editor for The Atlantic and the host of Holy Week, the podcast about the aftermath of the King assassination. It's available wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. And that's a word for this week. The show's email is a word at slate.com. This episode was produced by Christy Taiwo Macanjula. Ben Richmond is Slate's Senior Director of Podcast Operations. Alicia Montgomery is the Vice President of Slate Audio. Our theme music was produced by Don Will. I'm Jason Johnson. Tune in next week for a word.